this is Ellen. And this is Heidi. And we're here to introduce this episode of Remnants of Resistance, honoring the dead, remembering the living. You're about to hear Dr. Omar Gonzalez discuss documentation of the AIDS crisis in the queer Chicano community through the lens of scholar Gloria Anzaldúa's Seven Stages of Conocimiento or Knowledge. The sources discussed can be viewed on this episode's website, linked from the show notes. And now we'll hand it off to Omar. Bienvenidos. Hello and welcome to my podcast. I'm Dr. Omar Gonzalez from the Chicana Chicano Studies Department and Queer Studies. And today we'll be exploring the intersection of queerness or joteria, as we call it in Mexican Spanish, and in Chicano identities. So let's get started. So let's get into our DeLorean time machine and let's go back to the early 1980s. And the ancestors call, divas to the dance floor, please. The siren song of the dance floor beckons queer brown bodies to our church, our sacred space, our home, to dance, to make community, to hunt or be hunted. Yet an unknown presence is making itself known in the bathhouses, the back rooms, and the sex clubs. The young and the beautiful will soon be disfigured and discarded. The faces of the afflicted are all skeletal white, while the Chicano queer community screams in a vacuum. We are dying too. I create this podcast as a queer amoshli, the Nahuatl term for codex or writing that will serve as an historical marker for younger queer Chicanx men and others to proclaim, we've always been here. The title of my podcast is Honoring the Dead, Remembering the Living, documenting the AIDS crisis in the queer Chicano community through the process of Gloria Anzaldúa's Conocimiento. The HIV AIDS epidemic is well into its sixth decade, having claimed the lives of over 36 million people globally. Nearly two generations of gay men and others lost their lives to this mysterious virus whose name Reagan did not utter until near the end of his second term. Although there exists life-saving treatment, young people and gay and bisexual men of color bear the brunt of new seroconversions. In LA County, over half of gay and bisexual black men will seroconvert, and over one in three gay and bisexual Latino men will seroconvert. In the 1980s, to my 12-year-old queer indigenous eyes, the face of AIDS was first Rock Hudson. In the following years, it metamorphosized from Hudson to Ryan White to Liberace to Allison Gertz to countless gay white men, emaciated, covered in lesions, gasping and drowning in phlegm. These images reinforced my theory that the curse of homoerotic attraction was relegated to white men, except for the disco singer Sylvester, who tragically succumbed to AIDS complications in 1987. If he was the only gay black man, I must be the only gay Indian slash Chicano. Laughable now, but this yet this was 1985. A young indigenous Chicano queer trying to make sense of his unhealthy and condemned desire simultaneously learns of the disease that will surely claim his life. However, instead of cowering in the closet, 
I bolted through a closing door to quote the Pet Shop Boys song, Being Boring, and embraced my sexuality. HIV AIDS did not and does not scare me. Instead, I remember those whom I have lost and wish to document those I discovered through my research to conocer or know, remembering those living with the virus, the majority of whom, to, re to reiterate, are black and brown, gay and bisexual men. Aside from the erasure of people of color from the epidemic, the history of the HIV pandemic is necessary education, particularly in today's fascistic climate regarding alleged controversial books and curriculum. The response to the COVID pandemic from the heterosexual community piqued a question of historical memory for me. Watching irrational mobs hoard ramen and toilet paper caused me to reflect on my activist experience in the HIV AIDS movement, my research as a queer Chicanx scholar, and the recent monkeypox outbreak. As we had been transported back to the mid-1980s, nightly broadcast news anchors uttered terms such as viral load, resistance, and quarantine. Dr. Anthony Fauci resurfaced as both public servant and polemicist. Where the analogy diverges is the governmental response. Less than a year passed when the CDC released the first round of COVID vaccines. We're still waiting for an HIV vaccine over 40 years later. Also, no meaningful drug regimen was available to the masses of HIV serial converts until the late 1990s. Nearly 20 years into the disease did the procession of death begin to subside. The government left us to die. Cis-hetero people, save a precious few, replaced their red AIDS ribbons with the subsequent cause du jour. They left us to die. The unprecedented quickness of the COVID vaccine release was predicated upon decades of HIV vaccine research, unbeknownst to many. And one of the earliest HIV drugs, ritonavir, is the primary agent in a COVID treatment prescription drug. Thank yous. Summer 2022, the monkeypox virus invades the gay community. The historical memory of the horror show that was is the AIDS kicks in. Gay and bisexual men respond accordingly to the threat through harm reduction and getting vaccinated. 90% of the people who receive the monkeypox vaccine are men, presumably men who have sex with men. This immediately, this immediate community action prevented monkeypox from proliferating and spreading to the cishet population. According to one study, lesbians and gay men also have a higher rate of COVID vaccination than the cishet population. More thank yous. In this episode, I explore the question of the missing Chicanidad or Chicanones within the history and contemporary analysis of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And unbeknownst to most outside of queer Gen X and older populations, the epidemic continues to represent an ongoing issue as the numbers rise for the aforementioned populations of gay and bisexual men of color and in particular youth, queer youth. These thoughts guided me as I searched the archives for any traces of brown men to resuscitate their voices, providing them oxygen through the files of the archive. I tell this story through an Anzalduan lens, through her process she calls conocimiento, a form of gnosis or knowing through a Chicana lesbian feminist filter, as her essay, Now Let Us Shift Conocimiento Inner Work Public Acts, is a queer codex representing decolonial epistemological methods. She reintegrates mind, body, spirit to make us whole, to awaken us from the nightmare of the matrix, to begin the painful process of healing from historical colonial trauma.
but first we dance. this part of the podcast, I'll be explaining each stage of Gloria Anzaldúa's Conocimiento while ex- contextualizing it within remnants of resistance from the archive. So stage one is el arrebato or, the, or a rupture, fragmentation, an ending and a beginning. And this is from her essay. When two or more opposing accounts, perspectives, or belief systems appear side by side or intertwined, a kind of double or multiple seeing results, forcing you into continuous dialectical encounters with these different stories, situations, and people. Trying to understand these convergences compels you to critique your own perspective and assumptions. It leads to reinterpreting the story you imagined yourself living, bringing it to a dramatic, and and initiating one of turmoil, being swallowed by your fears and passing through a threshold. Seeing through your culture separates you from the herd, exiles you from the tribe, wounds you psychologically and spiritually. So she uses the metaphor of an earthquake that jolts us out out of our, 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 our bubble of comfort, so to speak. So think about, when AIDS hit the gay community and what a rupture that was after 12 years of sexual liberation and all of a sudden there was a disease that some people thought was spread sexually, some people thought it was a government conspiracy to push us back into the closet, but whatever the theories or the thoughts, it started to become our our plague, our bubonic plague, our version of bubonic plague or smallpox. From the archives, I found back issues of Paws magazine, and Paws is uh, slang for HIV positive in the gay community. So I found a, an issue from 1994, and there was an interview of Pedro Zamora, a, a queer Cuban HIV activist who was featured on the MTV's The Real World, San Francisco. He was out about his 
queerness, about his HIV positive status. And I have to remind you, this was before there were any dr drugs, medications that were that could help him live longer. There were some, but it was really 1996 is that threshold where the FDA thought realized that multiple drugs at once could keep the virus from replicating. But if had Bedro lived a couple years longer, he might have been able to access these drugs, but unfortunately he did not. So the real world, a precursor to much of what, uh, what I, along with millions of other viewers, consumed the show featuring seven 20-somethings picked to live in a house together, quote, to see what happens when people start stop being polite and start getting real. Pedro, with his heavy Cuban accent and rail-thin body, showed the masses what it was live, like to live an openly intersectional life on his own terms, similar to Sylvester. And like Sylvester, he paid a price physically and succumbed to the disease at the age of 22. So this was the first scene of a queer Latino dying of AIDS to the masses. And of course, there had been Latinos and Chicanos who had been succumbing to the disease the, la the previous 13 years of the illness, but Pedro was in everybody's living room. And we, we cried when we, he, he died the, the week after the last episode premiered. So Pedro was a mirror for young queer Latinos at that time who were sexually active, who were going out to the bars and to the bathhouses and realizing that that could be our fate. Stage two. So once we are ruptured, once we have that arrebato out of our comfort zone, that throws us into the Nahuatl term or the concept of nepantla, torn between ways, in the middle, it's a liminal state in between cultures. And Gloria says, quote, Nepantla is the site of transformation, the place where different perspectives come into conflict and where you question the basic ideas, tenets, and identities inherited from your family, your education, your different cultures. Nepantla is the zone between changes where you struggle to find equilibrium between the outer expression of change and your inner relationship to it, end quote. So this is happens a lot in my classes where when students start to learn real history say of of Christianity or Catholicism or or the US and it's a rupture to their beliefs that of thinking that the US is a benevolent country that the church has always been benevolent but then when they realize what it's done to uh, how it sanctioned the genocide of indigenous peoples, how it's the enslavement of Africans, the marginalization of women and LGBTQ people, then those two opposing viewpoints, perspectives, throw students or anybody into Nepantla. And so they start having to negotiate their identities. And you know, students have told me that they can be queer on campus, yet they have to be closeted as soon as they step off of campus and go back to their families because 
they are not ready or their families maybe will never be ready to hear the truth from their stu- from my students from their from their family members and so constantly it's like they're a ping pong ball going back and forth between both sides and that is a f- you could say that's a form of violence for psychological and emotional violence for that person having to live that way but so many people do and one other question to explore through this podcast is how do LGBTQ plus Chicanx gente or people reconcile their own Chicanidad, their own Latino Chicano identity with their joteria or their queerness, given the fact that two thirds are Catholic and the other third are mostly Protestant evangelical Christian, which two belief systems that are still very opposed to uh, out queer people. And the Catholic Church has moved somewhat, but not enough to where we're valid and can uh, express ourselves openly and get married and uh, be considered on the same level as cishet Catholics. So this exploration of this intersection is the objective of the burgeoning field of what is called joteria studies or queerness in in Mexican Spanish. It's a slur, joto or jota is a slur. Um, It's equivalent to the F word in in English, but it's uh, in, there's a uh, caucus of Chicana Chicano studies. It was called the Joto Caucus and that was created in the early nineties by, actually a, a friend of mine, a scholar, a, a prominent Chicano studies scholar, and they decided we're going to have a Joto caucus under Chicano studies to address L, uh, LGBTQ issues. And then now that's broken off into another organization called AHAS, and which, is, which focuses on activism, on scholarship, and on the arts. And so Joteria Studies is... Based, akin to queer studies, but with a Chicano Latino uh, focus. So, queer Chicanx authors such as John Rechi, Arturo Islas, Benjamin Sainz, uh, who wrote uh, Aristotle and Dante. Everybody, that's such a famous book now. The both both the original and the sequel. Michael Nava, Alicia Caspar de Alba, Gloria Zaldúa, Cherry Moraga, Felicia Lemus. Graciela Limon and Gil Cuadros are just a few authors, queer Chicanx authors, who have forged a path in this really exciting field of study. And the expansion of Joteria studies is really critical given the demographics of the CSUN undergraduate population. So I see that struggle that I just mentioned on the faces of my queer brown students. How can I be both queer and brown, and Catholic, and working class, and an immigrant? and all the other, and living with a disability. So all these questions, right, all these intersectional questions that my students, both uh, Brown and other, they're constantly exploring. And I think that's really exciting, but can be dangerous for given their home environment. So that these students constantly negotiate their cultural and religious identities with their sexual and gender identities. So that's what this Nebanla space is, stage two. So this going back and forth, constant negotiating. So they're never static. They're constantly evolving. So the people on both ends 
that they have to deal with might be static. And but when you're in Nepala, you're constantly evolving and changing. And that brings us to stage three because that kind of negotiating can be tiring, can be violent, can be depressing. So the stage three is the Guatliqua state, this conocimiento and the cost of knowing. So first, Guatliqua is an Aztec goddess or a Mexica goddess of life, death, and regeneration. She's pictured, I'll try to describe her. She's, she has uh, two snake heads as her head. She has a, a, sur, a skirt made out of serpents. Her name actually means she who wears serpent skirt. She has a necklace of human hearts and hands. She has a snake around her waist to denote uh, that she is pregnant. And she has eagle talons. And when the Spaniards first saw her, they were so just uh, horrified that this could be akin to the Virgen de Guadalupe because she is this earth goddess, this um, like a mother earth goddess, very much of the terrain of the earth. And uh, just like a snake slithers on its belly. And the, as they saw the Aztecs praying to her, the Mexica, and they just were aghast because of course in Judeo-Christian mythology, a snake is something evil that tempted Eve but snakes have a different perspective. And again, these are the, this clash of perspectives talking about in from stage one. So Gualique is the goddess for this stage. Desconocimiento means not knowing or, or not seeing. So because when we start to realize these things about like say ourselves or when uh, AIDS hit or when Pedro Zamora died, or any, any trauma that we encounter with family or historical or colonial, sometimes that's too much for to bear. And we descend into the depths of our darkness. And of course, we all have our shadow side, and that is what Guadalicua is. So we, we descend into darkness, and then because we cannot confront these new ways of seeing yet. We're not, we're not ready. So that's when we can fall into ad addictive behaviors, um, whether it's retail, you know, sh shop shopping, you know, food, uh, whatever a person's addiction could be. Um, for me, it's jelly donuts and pizza. And, um, you know, when I'm feeling um, just overwhelmed with every, you know, things that I have to do. So, but it could be anything that we just, it's our comfort zone, right? Because uh, we guess we, we're falling out of the matrix or being yanked out of the matrix, but sometimes, just like in the original matrix, one of the characters wanted to be reinserted back into the matrix because reality was just too much. And Gloria says about this, quote, gradually the pain and grief force you to face your situation. The daily issues of living laid bare by the event that has split your world apart. You can't change reality, but you can change your attitude toward it, your interpretation of it. If you can't get rid of your disease or trauma, you must learn to live with it. As your perception shifts, your emotions shift. You gain a new understanding of your negative feelings. By seeing your symptoms not as signs of sickness and disintegration, but as signals of growth, 
you're able to rise from depression, slow suicide. By using these feelings as tools or grist for the mill, you move through the fear, anxiety, and anger and blast into another reality, end quote. So Gloria is saying that we're, when we're in the Kualiqua state, we start to use our trauma not as to reflect our, of any kind of victimhood, but to realize that these are tools of growth. And so from these new ways of seeing comes depression often. The recognition of our shadow self, acknowledging the monster of our shadow beast. And the shadow beast is another concept that she wrote about in an earlier work, her, her landmark uh, book called Borderlands, La Frontera, The New Mestiza, published in 1987. So the shadow beast is this figure that we all have the shadow beast. And Gloria says that our shadow beast is that those internalized isms that we harbor about ourselves and that sometimes we don't like to talk about and we don't want to because we, we've been colonized for so long that we can't just get over our colonization in one day, that those they linger. And sometimes we go through events that reinforce these internalized isms, whether it's in homophobia or racism or sexism. And so the shadow beast will appear in the mirror when we're feeling these depths of, of darkness or depression. The colonized side of oneself that refuses to unlatch itself from our psyche. And we know people like that who can never uh, get over their, their racism towards a certain group or their homophobia or their transphobia. I mean, look at the, the fight we're having with the TERFs against trans people and non-binary people. You know, there's a, that group of LGB people who are anti-trans and that just boggles my mind that trans, especially trans women of color were so instrumental in starting and continuing the movement, yet these LGB people, TERFs, want to erase them and, and want to kick them out of our movement as if they're gatekeepers. So these are the, the, the that's the shadow beast for those people, the TERFs. They're, they can't see their, how their transphobia is really a reflection of their themselves. So we fall into old patterns of addiction and self-harm. Yet Guatlique, the Mexica goddess of life, death, and regeneration, protects us in this catatonia as we reconcile the differences from Nepantla. It's almost like as if we're in a, the chrysalis state when we're in Kualikwe. And she holds us, she soothes us, and she says, because trauma, it takes a long time to heal from trauma, from colonization, from this realization that we're, e we're even colonized in the first place, still, whether it's by capitalism, by white supremacy, by patriarchy, um, especially with this ongoing conflict in the Middle East, it's really interesting to see where people are falling into these sides instead of just advocating for peace for both sides and not wanting any kind of um, uh, you know misfortune to happen to, or, or violence to happen to anybody. That should be the end goal. But our colonization makes us a side on one way or the other in conflict. So at this point, as we emerge from out of the Gualiqua state, 
it's time for some poetry realness. So this first poem is called Maya Olmec Mexica Toltec Love. I remember you from 500 or so years ago. I have the memory of your eyes looking straight into my soul and our past life. You recognize me from some ancient rainforest long since paved over. Maya Olmec Mexica Toltec Timeless. Destino, time and space obliterated. Next time there will be no smallpox, no HIV to distract us, to get in our way. Mentragare en ti, skin on skin, no barriers, latex, lenguaje, or any other. We will nourish each other. Our bodies are our only sustenance. But I was stricken with the new plague. You used indigenous medicinal magic extract, extracted from yervas long since extinct to sustain me for a while. But not even all the corn temple and sea goddesses could save me from the scourge brought here from Christian Euro civilization. My body, marked and disfigured, cut loose, cuts loose its spirit. I pass into the next cycle of life, yet I vow to meet you again. Is that what we saw in each other's eyes? Memories of ancient civilizations, ancient peoples, ancient tongues, ancient rituals, ancient existences, and a longing, a longing and a yearning so deep and profound que las palabras no lo puedan describir. And though you won't be able to save me from the current plague, I will succumb to smallpox, HIV. However, Donancin will shelter me in her templo, La Llorona will wrap me in her rebozo, Yemaya will stroke my body with her waves. They will caress me in their cariño, will rid me of this pestilence, will comfort and reassure me that we will meet again, and next time our love will be fully realized. And I will wait for you, impatiently. But in a split second, I will recognize a millennium's worth of memories in your burnt sienna colored eyes. So this next poem is called A History of AIDS in Three Acts. Act one, the movement. A red death looms at the juncture of two decades. Lesions are signs not heeded. The party continued until the article, rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals. Procession of bodies mark urban areas, marching in the streets. Fight back, fight AIDS, act up. Unknown heroes, bodies in the streets, forced straight society to look in the mirror. Lesbians nursing, burying their queer brethren. Patchwork of memories blankets the memorial lawn. December 1st, AIDS Day of the Dead. Act two, corporal soliloquy. Funhouse mirror, galaca limbs, bloated bansa, buffalo hump. Like some made in China via the Los Muertos decoration. Protease inhibitors, non-nucleoside, reverse transcriptase inhibitors, entry inhibitors. Red Death's entry is inhibited at a price. Lipodystrophy, neuropathy, constant trips to the bathroom, can't digest food, nausea, wasting. Energy drain, dizzy spells, walking underwater, night sweats, night terrors. Zytovidavine, ephephorins, sequenavir, ritonavir. Exotic names for poisons keeping the worms from reproducing, yet transform me into a sideshow freak. Act three, Red Death's New Mask. Three decades pass, no more red ribbons, 
No more celebrity PSAs. Procession of deaths has morphed into an industry of 501c3s, pharma ads, glittery galas. Just take prep and party away. Marriage, military, middle-class tax cuts are the critical issues. The red death lurks in the meth smoke and barebacking parties, waiting to mutate and devour its feast. All right, everybody, let's take a quick dance break, move your feet, or sit in your chair and groove. Now we go to stage four, the call, el compromiso, the crossing and conversion. So Gloria writes, by now you've found remnants of a community, people on a similar quest, path. To transform yourself, you need the help, the written or spoken words of those who have crossed before you. You want them to describe las puertas, the doors to hold your hand while crossing. You want them to mentor your work within the Chicana, queer, artistic, feminist, spiritual, and other communities. To learn what to transform into, you ask, how can I contribute? You open yourself and listen to the La Naguala, the shapeshifter, and the images, sensations, and dreams she presents. La Naguala presence is so subtle and fleeting, it barely registers unless tracked by your attention's radar. Your inner voice reveals your core passion, which will point to your sense of purpose, urging you to seek a vision, devise a plan, knowing that something in you or of you must die before something else can be born. You throw your old self on the ritual pyre, a passage by fire. In relinquishing your old self, you realize that some aspects of who you are, identities people have imposed on you as a woman of color, and that you have internalized are also made up. So your reason, if it's all made up, you can compose it anew and differently, end quote. So here we have starting to reconcile the parts of our identities that our family, our religion, our peers have imposed upon us. So as queer Ch Chicanos and Chicanas, from the 70s, 80s that I've found in the archive, especially this one organization called Glue, Gays and Lesbians Latinos Unidos. So they started in 1982 here in LA. And these are my elders as a queer Chicano. And they started as a social group because a lot of the bars were all white. And they start, but and then as AIDS hit, they started a Latino AIDS organization, which eventually became Bienestar, which is a huge organization. I think there are maybe six or seven locations, if not more, that serve the queer and trans Latinx communities in Southern California. So their activism. So when Gloria says, you find others like you who are on the similar quest or path. So I've been... In my research, I've been finding all these 
crisscrossing connections from the, my previous work uh, in this field. And it's just, I feel like Gloria is leading me to research more and more of these organizations and these people who made it possible for me to be sitting here now. Uh, there was a, a previous organization called Gala in the Bay Area from the 70s, and now there's Glue in the early 80s. And I was part of a group called Algo, the Austin Latino Latina Gay, um, Gay and Lesbian Organization in Austin, Texas in 1980. Uh, it's founded in 1985, and I was a staff member there in the late uh, 90s, early 2000s. So all these, so what I had been looking for, I had already known. I'm just the, this, but this podcast and this research that I've done for this podcast is making me realize that all the all these branches of the of the same tree. I just have to start to put them together to form this history that has not been told in this way. So this is the beginning of this work. So I seek out the voices in the archive as well in, as in queer Chicanx literature. The voices from the ACT UP newsletter, which I found, many have crossed over. So in this newsletter I found from 1988 in the archives, an ACT UP newsletter, and ACT UP stands for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, probably the most well-known AIDS, AIDS group, um, and there are several documentaries about them. But in this newsletter, there was a section about AIDS in the Latino community. And I was so gratified to see that, that they were already thinking in an intersectional way in 1988. And they were also looking at AIDS in the black community. So in the AIDS and Latino community section, the person who wrote it is named Michael Puente. And he was assistant director of this group called Cara a Cara, a, Latin, a Latinx HIV organization. And then when I remembered this organization, Glue, I looked them up and I found this, this writing from Lidia Otero, who lives in Arizona now, but for the 20 years, she was an activist here in LA. And it's just, and I was thinking about oh, I need to find Michael Puente. And she writes of what I found from in Lidia Otero's article that soon after they had uh, founded Blue and he was made treasurer, he succumbed to AIDS. So all these connections are being made and I don't know what to do with them other than document them and put them and, and honor them and remember them. So Michael Puente, whose name I just found out when I did this research in the archive, will be the subject of my altar when I make, that I make for Day of the Dead in less than two weeks. Because he was instrumental in this activism that's allowed so many of us to keep working and, and doing the work that's important to us. And so this is where activism comes in. So this is not new age healing where it's just about me, me, me. Gloria says she's written and she passed away almost 20 years ago now that when we work in the community, we start to heal ourselves. And that leads us to stage five, putting Koyal Shauki back together 
new personal and collective stories. So Koyoshauki is the Mexica moon goddess, and she was dismembered. She was in, in an act of violence. So if you see her, this, the image of Koyoshauki, she's beheaded and she's dismembered. So Chicana lesbian feminists have reclaimed her and as the the, meta, the historical trauma, the historical violence upon women, especially women of color, especially queer women of color. But now with Koil Shauki that we can start to remember ourselves through these personal and collective stories. So for Gloria and for uh, a lot of us, writing is healing. So this, uh, so all these writings that I mentioned, all these groups, I started to write about them because these stories need to be honored, they need to be remembered, they need to be told to the younger uh, generations that, um, that need to know about what activism was, queer activism was like when everybody was dying. So I remember the tail end of the the wave of deaths, and I lost a few friends, but I know people who are five to seven to ten years older than me, they lost dozens of friends, of of people that they knew to to the epidemic, and we we need to remember them. And so that brings us to stage six. It's a clash of realities, the blow-up. And Gloria writes, new knowledge occurs through tension, difficulties, mistakes, and chaos. But through this, through this clash of realities, comes, forges new partnerships. For example, in the archive, I found letters written to this, this Chicana from East LA named Juana Gutierrez, who was the founder of this group called Madres of East LA, the Mothers of East LA. And the in these letters was from this activist who's still a big activist in the queer Chicano community here in LA, Richard Saldivar, who asked her in his letters if she, if she wanted to be part of the Wall Las Memorias. And the Wall Las Memorias is the only a physical structure dedicated to Latino, um, the, the La Latinos who have succumbed to the AIDS virus. And it's it's in Lincoln Heights, just north of downtown LA. It's beautiful, I, it's right off the five. I highly recommend everybody to go. It's just this beautiful, it's by the reservoir. It's this beautiful, tranquil memorial to, and you have people's names are etched into these stones. Uh, similar to like the Vietnam Memorial, but there's also these Chicano murals, and it's just this beautiful uh, memorial. And so we have in the 80s, in the early 90s, we have um, Richard Saldivar making these connections to other parts of the of the Chicanx community in East LA because uh, to bridge those communities. So people. Real activists do the work, and in stage six, uh, if you read her essay, Gloria writes about being a nepantlera, 
meaning a person who's always in that batla doing the work of mediating between opposing sides to achieve the ultimate goal, which is social justice liberation. So Richard Saldivar, by making these connections, and Juana Gutierrez, they are being nepantleras because they're not sequestering themselves into their own sections of the community. So that when I found that in the archive, I thought that was such a beautiful example of stage six of that, even though, you know, maybe the all maybe the the women of the Madres of East LA, you know, I don't know their stance on queerness, but you know, they at least the the executive director or the founder at least was working with found it important enough to work with the wall Las Memorias. And then stage seven, shifting realities, acting out of acting out the vision or spiritual activism. And she writes, We remember our dead. And for me, we have mentioning five people. Arturo Islas, a queer Chicano author from El Paso who wrote The Rain God. We have Carlos Almaraz, an artist who was born in Mexico City. Gerardo Velasquez, an artist and musician from East LA who was in a group called Gender Trouble uh, with the, sing the, the lesbian singer Frank was in that group too. Mundo Mesa, who was an artist from East LA and Gil Cuadros, a poet and essayist who was from Montebello. And they all succumbed to, to the virus in the 80s and 90s. And one more that I found in the, what inspired me to, to do this research for in, in this archive was that I had found one other queer Chicano activist, Anthony Balsena, who I'm, do, I'm working in his archive. His archive is at UCLA. And I had never heard of him. I've, no one's written about him. But he was in ACT UP. He was a Chicano. He was a choreographer. He was an artist. And um, he, he choreographed this musical called AIDS, the musical, which uh, in the 80s. And he died very relatively early in the epidemic. But again, the... I need to give him oxygen. I need to resuscitate him so that way we are I can write a complete history about the intersection of Chicanidad and queerness or Joteria, but also the people, the generations of, of queerness of queers that we have lost to AIDS, but also to remember to honor the dead, but the title I also say remember the living, which means that those there should not be any serial conversions but the last statistic that i will give is that in 2021 is the last year we have statistics nearly 40,000 people in the u.s serial converted that is absolutely ridiculous that so many people are still serial converting and the majority of those were uh men gay and bisexual men, and the majority of those were of color and or youth. So the education, so the lack of education is showing in the numbers, even though everybody should who's sexually active should be on PrEP. 
but we know that because of structural issues, because the lack of universal health care, people do not have access to these uh, life-saving and preventative, you know. So now these people, I have one student um, from a few years ago who texted me during the shutdown, and I thought, oh, he must need a letter recommendation or something, but he texted me that he was in the hospital and he had AIDS. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he had been in my class at UCLA. Um, it was a queer-themed, uh, queer Chicano literature. That was the class. And he said that he tried to get on PrEP, but Medi-Cal denied him twice. And his partner at the time did not disclose his status. So young Chicano in his early 20s, needlessly seroconverted because of these structural issues and we can blame the partner but he should have been on prep they should have given him prep when he asked for it so these kinds of things still inspire me and make make, make me angry and make me want to go through the stages of of conocimiento because nobody should seroconvert anymore we should already have a vaccine we should nobody should have to die of aids ever again and so that's how I leave you, and I, I plan to do more research in this archive, but just what I found has just inspired me to do this work even more. So Day of the Dead or Dia de los Muertos is coming up, so I'd like you to think about your ancestors as they travel back to this realm and honor them, remember them, and, all, and most importantly, celebrate life with them. Thank you very much.